Good morning. As we like reading here, right? We know the Bible to be the Word of God, written by men, but writing what God moved them and showed them to write, so we know it is all truth. So the words of our Lord and Savior. Amen. Book of Philippians, chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all making requests with joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Amen. Even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that you may approve things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, unto the glory and praise of God. But I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather under the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. Let us pray. Father, pray that you be with the preacher this morning. Lead him and guide him, Lord. And may your word come forth clear and concise. And may all, all your people here be built up. And Lord, may any, anyone who hears it that is not yet found, we pray that the word, the seed planted in their heart, you would use to open their eyes and soften their heart and reveal yourself to them. May you be glorified through the preaching and teaching of your word. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. Yeah, we, uh, we had a Reader's Digest condensed version of the song service this morning uh, for uh, certain reasons. Amen. So anyway, well, good to have us all gathered together this morning. Amen. And uh, so thankful as uh, Howard has read God's Word. I'm thankful uh, each and every Lord's Day, each and every Wednesday night. Amen. When we gather together for prayer meeting, we open the Bible up to hear from the Psalms. Amen. Uh, how needful God's Word is and uh, how it uh, continues to work in the hearts and minds of, of His children, amen, the children of God. And so uh, we have indeed a very high view of God, which in turn, brother, then creates a high view of what? Of His Word and those things that He has certainly spoken of. And we do believe that they are indeed preserved, amen, and perfect as they ought to be. And we we're so thankful for that. And so this morning as we begin, we remember a couple of weeks ago, we had the good pleasure of being introduced to the book now that we're going into, this glorious epistle of the book of 
Philippians. This divinely preserved memo of God. And again, brother, this is how we hear from God. This is how God speaks to us. Amen. Is through his word. As I always tell people, if you want to hear from God, you hear from the two lips of God, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Amen. And he speaks to us through his word. It is a, a letter, a epistle, if you will, that was written to the brethren at Philippi in about 1960 years ago. And to all of God's chosen posterity until the Lord comes. And we'll see that here this morning, how important, again, how relevant it is and how practical it really is for us. Now, we remember, again, because uh, our memories are short and I have a short one and it's getting worse as my hair continues to turn the color that it's tur turning, amen, that the Holy Ghost had led the Apostle Paul to write this letter to the Philippians while he was indeed imprisoned, incarcerated in Rome in 63 AD. And so we remember that this letter, as we looked at it really from a macro level, if you will, last time in our introduction to it, from a, a 50,000 foot level, if you would, amen, we remember there's some glorious themes throughout this book. And it it's in Paul's incarceration as he is chained there in Rome that this book has its, it gets its memory, amen, and brings forth the truths of joy in that. So Paul's in prison and God is using him there as he's in prison to write to the brethren. It's uh, really quite an amazing thing when you consider that. So what we want to do this morning, brethren, is we by the aid of the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit of God, is we want to come really down from a macro level that we looked at to a micro level. We'll get down just a little bit into the depths of what Paul was saying, amen, because one of the most important things as we consider this is that when it was written, it was written to people, again, who lived 1960 years ago, and it was relevant to them, amen, and so as Paul was writing this, how would they have understood it, and how is that relevant for me then? How is that relevant in our day today? And we all know that it is indeed this memo from God to us, his posterity in 2024. It's an amazing thing we're going to consider here this morning. Look there, if you would, chapter 1. Look at verses 3, 4, and 5. We'll kind of read these together, and we'll, uh, we'll group them together and study them together. Philippians chapter 1, look at verse number 3. Look what Paul writes there. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine, for you always making requests with joy. There again is one of the main themes. Verse 5, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Now again, as we look here, we begin, and Paul begins here in verse number 3 with a nine-verse prayer. Because verse 3 through verse 11, it is a prayer that Paul is praying for the Philippians. And so we look at this and we consider this and we see that when Paul is writing this over and over and over again, he says here, he, he does this and writes this prayer concerning them with fond memories and great joy of them. Which again, when you think about a great brother who has been influential in your life, when you think about them, amen, when you think of the impact that they have had on you, it brings and it should bring great joy and fond memories, amen. And so this is what Paul is doing. He's thinking about the Philippians as he's sitting there in the prison in Rome and he's thinking all he can do is he thinks about this, these memories of him. Every time he thinks about their Christ-like love for him, every time he thinks about their sacrificial giving for the furtherance of the gospel, all he can say is this in verse number seven, it is meat. Look there, if you would, at verse number seven. He says there, 
For even it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, as much as both in my bonds and the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you're all partakers of my grace. So again, Paul, when he thinks about them, when he thinks about these brothers, and again, immediately when I think of these things, when I think of a brother who's had, had an impact in my own spiritual life, amen, early on, Raleigh Hutton uh, uh, comes right to my mind, the preacher that God used. The preacher who focused on the word of God, who taught me the word of God when I was lost, and he just sat there and said, this is the power. This is where you go. And immediately you think of this, this man, Brother Howard, I know who yours would be, in jail. Amen. That man prayed that God would reveal himself to him. You think of these, and this is what Paul is doing when he thinks of the Philippians. He thinks and he says, it is proper for me. It is fitting for me to think of you in this way. And so... This is exactly what Paul is doing as the Spirit of God is leading him there. He's filled with joy and thankfulness, he says, for their fellowship with him in the gospel. And again, brethren, as we know, we've studied enough of Paul. Amen. The Pauline letters, the Pauline epistles, the book of Acts, all these books that we've preached through. And it's always what? Gospel-centric. It's always the gospel. Paul's concern is always preaching the gospel his, and teaching the children of God how to live out after the gospel has impacted them. Amen. Live, them out, live out their lives in such a holy way. Now, this fellowship, again, we know these words. These are not deep uh, biblical words we don't know about. Fellowship really means koinonia. It is the unity of the spirit that flows, brethren, listen, from one's common Christ-like beliefs, from one's common, if you will, Christ-like convictions and behaviors. When we are gathered together, there are fundamental things that we believe, and those beliefs have an impact on us, amen? And so as we're with Christ, this fellowship, this koinonia, this is what it produces as we gather together, this like-mindedness. In fact, fellowship really forges among God's people a biblical orthodoxy. You know what a biblical orthodoxy, you know what orthodoxy is? Orthodoxy really means right thinking according to God's holy word. So in other words, when we are together, we have this orthodoxy together. We understand these fundamental truths of scripture. This is what it produces amongst us. That is the spirit of God works in us through the word of God. Amen. We come up with, again, this big word that we all you, you know, learned in Bible college and all this stuff. Orthodoxy, right thinking according to the words of God himself. That brings this unity amongst us in that. And it's very, very important. In fact, it really brings this unity, this orthodoxy, if you will, this straight thinking concerning how God is to be worshipped. You realize that we don't just show up here on Sunday morning and that God's worshipped any old way he wants to be, amen, or any old way that we think we should. What do we do? We turn to the word of God. We look and we see how does the scripture detail how God is to be worshipped. So therefore, as we're gathered together, we are worshipping God in a way that is orthodox, one that is biblical, amen? Secondly, it brings to our minds in regard to his holy work, his holy work and to his revealed will being done on the earth. And amen, this is, again is how important this is. When you consider what Paul is saying here, this fellowship, this koinonia, what it brings amongst the, the brothers and sisters, it brings these things together for keeping the unity within the body. Look at Philippians chapter 2, this idea of this fellowship in the gospel. Look at chapter 2 again. We don't have to leave the book of Philippians really to get an understanding and a proper biblical understanding of what this is. Look at Philippians chapter 2. Look at verse number 1. Paul writes to them, 
If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy. There it is again. Fellowship, joy. These are the themes that keep coming up in this letter. Amen. That ye be like-minded. Do you see that there? There's the orthodoxy. There's, there's the teaching from Scripture that a true believer, they will look at the fundamental things. Now, we certainly will have disagreements on, shall we say, those things that are not in the center, the bullseye, the fundamental things. We can, we can certainly, and we do have, I guarantee you if I said, hey, brothers, sisters, what's your eschatological view this morning? We will have different eschatological views sitting here as long as they're not heresy, right? I mean, you can have different ones, but there are fundamental things. This is what Paul is saying. To have a like-minded within the koinonia, within the fellowship, it brings forth this orthodoxy concerning fundamental beliefs. And this is what he is really thanking God for concerning them, this gospel that they're... Look at chapter 3. Again, he, he says this again. Look at chapter 3. Look there at verses 9 and 10. Look at what it means here as we consider this. He says it again. Verse number 9. And be found in him, not having my own righteousness. Amen, brothers. Amen. Religiosity, as we always say, kills. This is true salvation. Paul is saying, hey, I can go back. In fact, we'll see as we get later on in the letter... He says, well, I'm a Pharisee, a Pharisee. Keeping the law, I was perfect. All these things. And what does he say then? He says, I want to be found in Christ. That's a fundamental thing, brethren. That's something that should bring orthodoxy and unity to us. Because again, if you're outside of Christ, you're lost. Christ is very, very, if you will, narrow-minded. There's only one way. The Bible teaches that. Amen. There's no other name given on him which men must be saved. I don't care what anybody else says. The Bible is very clear. Christ is the only way. And so there's this unity that comes through that. And you see that there. Amen. And be found in him not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the, the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is, is of God by faith. Look at verse, 19, verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. There it is again. There's this koinonia, this thing that we are together with him and Christ and the other Christians in aim, being made conformable to his death. Now look at there, chapter 4. Just go down just a little bit to verse number 1. Again, Paul is just flowing with this thankfulness to God for their fellowship in the gospel, their koinonia, their togetherness, amen, their partnership together in that. Look what he says there, verse number 1. Therefore, my brethren... Dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown, there it is again, amen, this whole theme, just, it just goes from chapter 1 all the way to the end of the book, this great love that he, Christ-like love that he has, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. So again, he's calling on them to stand fast in those things that are fundamental, those things that we must be faithful in, amen, which includes all of the glorious doctrines that he's going to teach and has taught throughout the pages of Scripture. Now, this is getting theological because, again, theology must drive the train. Amen? Your theology must drive you. Amen? Your feelings can't drive you. you just go, look, we all have feelings. I cry sometimes. You cry sometimes. We have feelings. But, brethren, again, the two have to go together. The, the doctrine, the theology always leads the train. Because I'm telling you, if you're, well, maybe it's just me. Sometimes my feelings are deceived. Sometimes my feelings aren't right. And I've got to go back to that which doesn't change, to the word of God that keeps me, amen, that keeps me on the straight, on the track, if you will. Because you will fade off just like I would if you close the holy pages of Scripture.
Now, Paul says there in chapter 1, he says, from the first day. Well, what does he mean by that in, that in that particular text? What does he mean from the first day? Well, from the day that God opened Lydia's heart and saved her and then saved her household back in Acts chapter 16. Remember, this is what's taking place. This is what's happening. This is what he's referencing back to. Back when he first went to Macedonia, when he went there and he's preaching the gospel. From the first day that we saw the gospel at work, saving Lydia, saving her household. And then Lydia, what did she do? She opened her home and brought Paul and the men in there. That's what he literally means. From the first day until now. So in other words, he's encompassing, he's parenthesizing a large area of time. From the first day Lydia was saved until now. He's thanking God for the Philippians. Look there, if you would, this sacrificial giving. Again, thanking God with joy, having great memories of these, these brothers who had such an impact on him. Look at chapter 4 there. Look here. He's, he's, he's talking about their sac sacrificial giving and receiving when he first left Macedonia and even until now. Look at verse number 14 there of chapter 4. Again, this is what he's talking about. There's no, nothing left to our, uh, our imaginations. What's Paul so thankful for and grateful for? Look at verse number 14. Notwithstanding, ye have well done that ye did communicate. In other words, that you, you became partakers with my affliction. Now ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, again, that's going back, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated, no one gave, no one shared, no one participated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. So again, he has such joyous memories. Again, in our verse, in chapter 3, in chapter, or verse 3 and verse 4, he says, every time I think about them, these are the kinds of memories that I have. And this is what he's recording. This is what they're doing. In fact... It continues on there in verse number 18. He's not done. Look at verse number 18 there, if you would. He thinks of his brother Epaphroditus. Look there at verse number 18. But I have all and abound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which are sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice, acceptable, well-pleasing to God. And so again, he can't help himself. He thinks about the Philippians. All he can do is think wonderful, glorious things. And that's why he said, it is right for me. It is proper for me to think these things. Now, brethren, I pray that as we are fellowshipping, as we are, as we are in koinonia together, that we can have those kind of thoughts of one another. Amen? Too often, as we know, it's the other way. It's easy, isn't it, to become very negative, to think ill of your brother or sister. No, actually, we should be thinking like Paul. We should be thinking of good, thinking of good for them, thinking good of them. Amen? And this is what Paul is saying to the brothers. Hey, every time I think of you, this is all I think about. In fact, one pastor said this. This is Paul's great letter of song. It was first at Philippi that he had sung in prison at midnight with Silas. And that was back in chapter 16. The pastor continues. Now he is again in prison, this time in Rome, and he is filled with the songs of God's great joy for the brethren. Now just think of how backwards that is from our own culture, our own society. Amen? We think of, well, some people go to prison for, for a right reason. Sometimes God places pastors in prisons for a reason. Amen? We saw it in Canada. We've seen it here in America. Sometimes it's a beautiful thing. They go in there, preach the gospel. They accomplish God's will there. It's not a bad thing. Howard was teaching this morning about how God is sovereign over all things. 
Whatever comes, whatever happens, amen, it's easy to say. I know it. It's easy for, for the pastor to stand outside the storm and say it. But there is a biblical truth and reality that God is sovereign over everything that moves and comes and goes. Amen. And Paul understood this. He understood this. He knew that his imprisonment was for God's glory. Amen. And that's, again, something that we misunderstand many times. Now look what he says to them back there in chapter 1. Look at verse number 6. In fact, there, as we saw the Thessalonians, remember, they were living out the gospel. They were living out the effect of the gospel on them. Here's what Paul says in verse number 6 there, chapter 1. Look what he says there. Being confident in this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. What, what an amazing statement that Paul makes concerning here. Paul knows full well. <laughs> Paul knows full well. You know how Paul knows full well when he writes this? When he said God is going to uh, bring it to an end, that which he began. You know how he knows that? You remember the road to Damascus, don't you? You remember his encounter with Christ, don't you? You remember what he was doing, amen? He was going his own way, off to murder Christians, more and more of them, and jail more and more of them. And Christ came on the road to Damascus, knocked him to the ground, amen, and, and drew him onto himself and saved him there. This is how he can say, hey, God is the great initiator. God is the great initiator in one's salvation. He initiates it. He begins it. He starts it. He sees it through to the end, to the very end. And we're going to see that. Amen. And so Paul is very confident. That word confident is a good thing. That good work is God's activities. Listen, brother. It is God's activities in saving the lost sheep. And he will indeed bring it to a completed end. Paul is confident of this. He says this. I've lived it myself. I've experienced it myself. And now I see it being lived out in the Philippians. I see the work there. He's confident of this very thing. He's, he has, by God's grace, come. And that word confidence means to come to a settled conclusion. He has come to a settled conclusion that it is indeed God who initiates, God who starts, and God who finishes and everything in between. He is what? The Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. And Paul clearly understands. He says that to the brethren. Now, brethren, that should be a great comfort to us as Christians. You know, there are people who think you can lose your salvation. You understand this. There are people who think that you can lose your salvation, and the reason they think it is because they think they got their salvation. When God works... And he begins the work. He saves you. He seals you. He sanctifies you. He secures you. Amen. And this literally is what Paul is saying in the text. God initiates. He saves. He justifies. God then sanctifies, as we're going to see along here. And then finally, in the text, we're going to see how he secures to the very end. In fact, look at Philippians chapter 2, this, this idea here. Philippians chapter 2. And again, we're just laying out the depths of the ground here as we look at this. I want you to see this again. Probably one of the most misunderstood texts. Well, there's lots of them, but one of the most misunderstood texts in all of Scripture, especially when you are a religionist, especially when you think that your self-righteousness can somehow bring, uh, you know, bring uh, goodness from God, favor from God, grace from God. Look there, if you would. Look what Paul says. This idea of God beginning, God working through, and then bringing it to completion. Look there, if you would. At verse number 12, look at here. Now, again, if you don't have a proper understanding of salvation, you don't have a proper understanding of the working of God, you don't understand those things, you will come to the religionist conclusion 
that I can somehow work for my salvation. And I want you to pay careful attention to how Paul words this. Look at verse number 12. Uh, Philippians chapter 2. Look at verse number 12 there. Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more uh, in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13, very important. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to what? And to do. Do you see that? His good pleasure. Now, brethren, again, the good work that Paul is talking about in chapter 1 is the saving work of God. The one who initiates it, the one who imputes the righteousness of Christ, the one Christ who took their place for, the substitutionary death. Amen? This is what he's saying. But what he's not saying, <laughs> brother, if we notice the text immediately, amen, he's not saying, and he doesn't hint by any stretch of the imagination or imply in any way that one can somehow work for or earn their salvation. He says to work it out, not work for. There's a big difference, brother. Work it out and work for are two completely different things. He does not say it, would never hint of it. Can you imagine if Paul says here that one can work for their salvation? How many contradictions over and over and over again in Scripture you would have? What do we always say? You, what you do is you find clear passages of Scripture, okay? Clear passages of Scripture which will define the ones that aren't quite so clear because you cannot have a contradiction. There are no contradictions in Scripture, amen? And certainly in salvation, it is, again, as we say, of God alone. And so you look at passages of Scripture that are clear. Now, let me just uh, bring up a subject, amen? The subject of baptism, per se, amen? Now, many of you remember our beloved brothers, John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul. Many of you know who they are. And you remember they had, a, they had a, a, a great debate on baptism. I don't know if you've watched it. I would highly encourage you. Now, R.C. Sproul was a man of great wisdom. God used him in a great and mighty way. However, when he debated John MacArthur on baptism, he openly, John MacArthur, uh, uh, R.C. Opened, uh, opened the whole thing up. and He said, now I want to just tell everybody. Um, that, you know, Brother John's going to come and he's going to have all kinds of verses to support his view. Well, I don't have any. He literally said that, brother. And again, I get it. There's inferences and implications in, in that kind of a thing, inferences that you can draw. But you don't build a doctrine on something where there's inference or cl uh, not clarity. You draw it on clarity. And so you look in the book of Acts and every single time, Every single time someone was baptized, it was always after they believed. Every single time they trusted in Christ. That's what saves. Dumping water on someone doesn't save them. Believing in Christ saves them. And then they follow through. Like, we got a, well, I can't see it, but we got a big baptistry back there that we walk, walk down in together and we baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. It's a picture, a type of their death, burial, and resurrection. But it does not save. It is faith. And so... If you think here that Paul is by any stretch saying that you can work for and not work out, you have a huge problem. You have a huge misunderstanding when it comes to this idea. In fact, you can't read verse 12 without verse 13. That's why I read them together. Look there if you will. Now, Howard was discussing this this morning in Bible study. Highly recommend you come to Bible study. He was talking about the sovereignty of God. Amen? And man's responsibility. And how they run on a track. They go side by side. Amen? And you see this here in our text because what's going to happen is 
We're going to see that the reason we can work out our salvation, that again, that's the process of sanctification that we're going to see. The reason we can is because of verse 13. Look there what it says. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do what? His good pleasure. No. The reason you do holy things is because God has first made you holy. He has justified you and saved you. You understand, brother, that God changes your creaturely will when he saves you. People say, those of us of our ilk, those of us who lean reformed, that men are robots. Well, you turn us into robots. No, actually, we simply look at the amazing work of God and what he does in the heart and mind of someone who is lost. And he changes their will. He changes their creaturely will. And therefore, they will what? Then they will be obedient to God, not to work for salvation, but because of salvation. Because he said in Ephesians, and again, brethren, it's very simple. He saved us, what? To do good work. Not to be saved by them, but to do them. And again, this is the working out of your salvation. That's what this is. It's not working for, it's working out. And it's being through our obedience to the will of God, his, his revealed will in Scripture, where this is worked out. Because again, how does God save? How does God save a man or a woman or a child? Well, it's through his word. And generally, as a general sense, how is his word spread? How is it spread? Well, uh, our, our, our visitors this morning, Sean, it's spread through Sean preaching the word. It's, through, it's spread through his wife preaching the word. It's spread, through, it's spread through us preaching the word to the lost. Interesting. I always like this. I was thinking about this this morning. Uh, Brother Gina and Vicky aren't here this morning, but I remember one time she told me the story of, uh, of her friend who went to the college <laughs> went down to the college, this guy did, and he was sitting beside this woman. He was talking to her about the gospel, thinking she was the one that was supposed to hear the gospel from her that day. Well, you know who was actually hearing the gospel? It was her sister sitting next down on the end of the bench. She's the one that heard the gospel whom God saved that day. Here's, you know, this person, this man wanting to do the right thing and doing the right thing, preaching the gospel. We don't know. It is through the preaching of the gospel where one is saved. And you don't know if it's this person or that person. That's why, again, when Spurgeon was booted out of, out of the association, he was so upset because he actually believed. Brother, we've got to preach the gospel to every creature because we don't know who the elect are. You don't know, and neither do I. Amen? Therefore, that's why it's so amazing. This is how he saves. God saves through you and I, through the working it out, through the preaching as you go along, both to will and to do his good will. In fact, again, that's how he sanctifies us. He saves us when he initiates it. He sanctifies us all the way along, and then he secures us, and we're going to see until the day of Jesus Christ. What a glorious and great doctrine that is. Now, again, God who initiated the good work in them and in you this morning, if you're saved, the work of salvation, he will infallibly perform it unto the very end for our good. Amen? Look at the terminology he uses there in our text. Look there at verse number 6. Look there if you would. Philippians chapter 1, look at verse number 6. Being confident in this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until when? 
the day of Jesus Christ. Look down at verse number 10. Again, he's talking about beginning, the middle, and the end. The, the good end that God brings in the believer. Look at verse number 10. Look what it says. That ye may approve things that are excellent. That ye may have, that you may be sincere and without offense. Till the day of Jesus Christ. Till the day of Christ. In other words, beginning, middle, and end. And brother, it's such a glorious thing for us to grasp. Can you imagine, and again, can you imagine walking around thinking that at any moment you're going to lose your salvation? At any moment. I, I can't imagine living like that and not knowing that it is because of what the Father has done. Not because of what I've done, but what He's done to secure what, I, what He's done. Running around thinking from day to day. Now that'll drive you into some religion. When you think you've earned it, and you can keep earning it. Oh, I fell over here. Now, again, we confess our sins. We're sinners. Anybody know that? Anybody know that we sin every day? And God's grace, amen? His glorious grace covers them, amen? It's a glorious thing. If you think for a minute you're going to be sinless, and that's how you're going to get to heaven, you are in big trouble. Because I got news for you. Ten minutes after we leave, we might have some thought that's not very good. You might be having one now. <laughs> <laughs> Amen? If you're saved, it's been covered, it's been forgiven, it's washed away. Now again, that doesn't give the child of God license to sin. What that does is it makes us not want to sin. Amen? It makes us not want to live like the world when the Spirit of God is there. Look at Philippians chapter 2. He, does it, he says it again. He's, he's, again. he's reiterating to them the glorious end of the brothers and sisters there at Philippi. He uses it again. Look at verse number 15 of chapter 2. Look what he says there. That ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. And so again, he keeps reminding them of the work that God is doing, and continuing to do until the very end. It is a glorious thing. In fact, Spurgeon said, It was indeed a good work begun in the Philippians and all the believers. The work of grace has its root in the divine goodness of the Father. It is planted by the self-denying goodness of the Son, and it is daily watered by the goodness of the Holy Spirit of God. It springs from God's good. It springs from Him. It springs from His good and leads to good, and so it is altogether good. Amen? Again, this is what Paul is talking to them about. This thing which the Father began, this work that he began in you, he will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. In fact, he's so convinced here of this. Look what he does. Look at verses 7 and 8. He lays out this truth, and he so believes this truth that he calls one to witness for him. And again, brother, and I know there's confusion over this too. When you go into a court... <laughs> When you go into a court and, uh, you know, and you, you stand up there, you put your hand on the Bible, and, and, uh, and then they, they quote this to you, right? Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole what truth, and nothing but the truth? So help me who? So help me God. And so what they're doing is they're calling God, who is truth itself, to be your witness to say that you're going to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So Paul, this is what he does. Look what he does. He calls God the Father as his witness. He's saying, what I'm telling you, brothers, is truth. 
because I'm calling the omniscient God who knows every heart, every mind, every understanding here this morning. He's the one who is all truth and knows truth. Look there, if you would, at verse 7. The Bible says there again, even as meet for me to think this of all of you all, because I have you in my heart, and as much as uh, both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you're all partakers of my grace. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you in the bowels of Jesus Christ. So again, brothers, what is he doing here? And we have already taken note concerning part of this verse, concerning verse. Paul says it was proper, it was fitting to him to think of the brethren and think of them the way that he is thinking. He had the Philippians, he says, here in his heart. Do you know what that literally means? It literally means his whole personhood, the inner man. He loved them so much. He said, I've got you in my heart. I've got you in my reins, in my kidneys, in my inner being. This is how much I love you. In fact, not only that, he was so thankful, again, that they were partakers in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Now, this is important. Paul says this. You understand there's two different things that he's speaking about here. First, the defense of the gospel. Well, how is the gospel defended? Well, it's defended by faithfully preaching and teaching the word of God. You've heard of it. Apologia. Apologia. This is what he's saying. I'm here defending the gospel. This is what I'm doing. And the Philippian brothers and sisters are there with him defending the apologia of the gospel. This is what they're doing. It's an earnest contending for the faith. As a lawyer does at a trial, he stands up with his words and he speaks, and if you will, the apologia. He speaks of the truth of this matter. In fact, look at verse 17. He says it there again. But the other of love, knowing that I am set for the apologia, the defense of the gospel. That's first of all. That's really the, the positive and the negative at work, amen? Again, just as a trial lawyer. And then he says, I'm here not only to defend it, but I'm here to confirm it. What does that confirming do? It means to authenticate it. It literally means to substantiate, to validate, to verify. Listen, brethren. What the gospel has done to you and in you. You have to understand this again. There is a lot of false teaching today. That one can allegedly come to Christ and not be changed. No. That's not possible. If you come to Christ, you think you've come to Christ and you haven't been made new and you haven't been changed and, and there's no repentance, you did not come to the Christ of the Bible. Paul is saying here that it is through the confirmation of what the gospel has done in us and to us that people see this change. And what does that do, brother? It brings what? Glory to God. Think of this for a moment. Think of how the Bible describes us. And again, when you consider what the Bible really says, and again, not what men think or what men say they think it says, when you consider what Eve, or God told Adam, first of all, and then Eve told the serpent, and then, and then Jesus told the people who were around him, and when Paul says that men are born dead, yeah, that's what it is, right? I mean, what did God tell Adam and Eve? If you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. You, you're dead. You're not just sick, you're dead. Eh? Amen? Then Eve has to tell, ah, did God, did God really say that? No, actually, God said if we even touch the fruit, we're going to die, which he added to the word. He never said that, but irregardless. And then Jesus, what does he say when the people are around him? 
the, the, the man runs up and says, hey, let me go bury my father. And Jesus said, no, you let the dead bury their dead. So in other words, you have walking dead people, amen? People who are alive and yet spiritually dead. And when you consider how we really are in our natural state and what God has done and what only God can do in the life of a believer as he draws and as he saves and as he does those things, as he regenerates, as he causes one to be born again. This is Paul's great, glorious song of our text. I mean, these are the things that he's speaking of. To confirm the gospel is to authenticate it, to substantiate, to validate it, to verify what the gospel has done to you and in you. In fact, it would sound like this. Here's what I was before God saved me. I was like thus. And now that God has saved me, I am like this. There is a sharp contrast, amen, and we know this. And this is what Paul is saying. Listen, brethren, there's, 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 there's not much worse. And again, in, in, a, in a general sense, I know that we're all hypocrites in some way or another. But you want to know one of the great charges against the church today? You want to know what people use against the church today? That church is full of hypocrites. Well, yes, yes, in, in, in a sense it is. But in another sense, we don't run around trying to be hypocrites, amen? We understand we're sinners. Now, some people are hypocrites. Paul is saying when we are defending the gospel, we must, what, confirm it by our lives, how we live, that it has indeed impacted us, that we haven't walked away believing we've trusted in Christ, and we have not because we're the same as when we came. It cannot be, brethren. It cannot be. This is the idea of defending the apologia of it, and then confirming it by us living out the work of the Spirit of God in us. We defend the gospel with our lips. We confirm it with our lives. Amen? This is exactly what Paul is teaching them and talking about that. In fact, he brings to our mind, verse 11, look there, the true child of God. This is what happens, brethren. Look at verse number 11, if you will. Look what he says. Being filled with the fruits of what? Righteousness which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. Again, this is what the world sees. When God saves a wretch like me, he, he takes and, and makes me a new creature. The world sees that. And they're stunned by that. That Mike was like this, and I still remember the day the Lord saved me, and the friend I ran around with, we were hor- you just go down the list of things. And the Lord saved me, and I remember he came to me, and he goes, what happened to you? What happened, Mike? Well, the Lord saved me. He changed me. And the guy just could not believe what happened. And again, I'm just using myself as an example. That's what the world sees. And I invited him to Bible study. He said, no, no, that's all right. I, I'm, I'm not going to church. I only go to church for two reasons, weddings and funerals. And his brother died just not too long after that. But this is what you see. This is what Paul is saying. It's not possible. When we defend the gospel, we must not be hypocrites while we're doing it. Amen? I mean, I like that, right? Anybody here work with hypocrites at work? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, I do because I'm, I'm there too. Amen? Uh, at times, I see that. Amen? We don't quit going to work, do we? Because there's hypocrites there? Does one then stop going to church because or stop coming to the fellowship because there's hypocrites here? Because in a sense, we all are. Paul is just saying, be careful, brethren. Don't live that kind of of lifestyle. Now, he says there's this fruit, this fruits of righteousness in the text. 
Literally, the Bible, what it literally means there is the results from being justified, that kind of fruit. The Lord Jesus Christ's meritorious, soul-saving work alone, which then brings glory and praise to God. This is the glorious thing that Paul is speaking. I want you to see this, just a couple of texts. I want you to see what Jesus himself says. And again, this is how we measure ourselves, brethren. You don't measure it by my life or by anything like that. You look at your own life and you look at scripture and you say, is, is my saved life, is it, is it, do I see it in the pages of scripture? Well, I pray you do, but I want you to see what Jesus said. Look at John chapter 15. And I want you to see, again, what, what I would call and what really this portion of scripture we could call is the progression of fruit. That is the righteousness that comes because of the work of Christ in you. Look there, if you would, at chapter 15. Look at verse number 1. Jesus says this. And again, I want you to notice the progression of the fruit. Look at verse number 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit. So in other words, he begins, there's no fruit. What does he do? He taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, well, here we go. There's no fruit. Now there's fruit. Look what he says. He purges it that it may bring forth more fruit. So we got no fruit, some fruit. Now we got more fruit. So again, this is a progression of the righteousness of Christ and the Spirit of God working in you. The fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, all of these things. And as we go along, it should be progressing. Look as he continues there. So we go from no fruit to some fruit and then more fruit. And we look there, if you would, verse number 3. Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you, and as the branch uh, cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth, what? Now it's much fruit. So we go from no fruit, to some fruit, to more fruit, to much fruit. What does that do then, brethren? As Jesus is sitting here teaching his disciples, what happens when a God saves a lost sinner and they are producing these righteous fruits? Look what he says in verse 8. No fruit, some fruit, more fruit, much fruit. What does that do then? Look at verse number 8. Here it is my Father glorified. <laughs> there you go. Amen. That ye bear much fruit, so ye shall be my disciples. So again, we see this, this constant growing in the Lord. Amen. This is a, an ongoing, nonstop thing. And again, if you look at Ephesians, we don't have time to go there. Verse, verse, chapter 1, verses 4 through 6, verse 12 and verse 14, he talks about God before the time began. He saved us. And then it was for what? To the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. That's why he does it. Amen. He doesn't... Okay, I know the, the evangelical world likes to say this stuff. He needs you and I. God did not need you and I. God was perfectly holy and good in himself in the Trinity of God. When was the last time God the Father needed anything when he had Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God living perfectly in perfect harmony in eternity? He made you and I, and we fell, we became sinners, so that he could save you and I, that he might be glorified in all the earth. That's why he made you and I. Isn't it a stunning thing to consider? And when you think about the depth of that, what God has done, and what he continues to do, and he will throughout as we see here his posterity clear on into the very time of eternity. Now, again, brethren, look back there at Philippians chapter 1. Look at verse number 8. 
<clears throat> look there if you would, Philippians chapter 1. Look at verse number 8. You're thinking, is he going to get done? I, I will, I will. Look at verse 8. He says all of this and he says, for God is my record. You know, there's nothing more serious, brethren. And again, when you go into a courtroom, you're calling God as your witness. I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. In fact, they're removing that now, but I watch a lot of court. I like true crime, you know what I mean? I like that. So you see that a lot. But what you consider is what they're actually saying. They're saying that when, when you come in, that you're going to be truthful because you're calling on the one who is truth. God himself who is truth. God who cannot lie. Think of that for a moment. This is what Paul does. He calls him as his witness. Look there. Verse number 8. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. Paul here expresses the depth of his affection for the brother at Philip. He describes it here for us as the affection of Christ, their Savior who loved them and died for them. This is what he's saying. He calls upon God the Father to bear witness to this truth, to the truthfulness of what he said. Again, he calls on omniscient God, the Father, the Lord who himself is truth. Look, it isn't that God is truthful. Do you understand this? He is truth. Do you understand that? That's his nature. His nature is to be truthful. He cannot lie, the Bible says. God cannot lie because it's not in his nature. You know who lies? Well, the father of lies. The one who tricks people, amen? The one who keeps them in the dark. The one who keeps the co- likes to keep the old cover over the eyes so they can't see the gospel until the power of Christ comes. He's a liar and a murderer, and he has been from the beginning. When you understand that, you begin to consider, well, again, what the Father has done, the goodness of God in all of this, as he says that what the Father has done concerning these brethren. He calls upon omniscient God, the one who cannot lie. In fact, there are many times, many times in Scripture, and again, brethren, I think, Brother Howard, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, the misunderstanding of what this means. When you go in and you swear, you better tell the truth. You tell the truth, no matter what. Especially when you bring God's name, God as a witness into it. And Paul did that on several occasions. Not once, not twice, not three times, not four times, five times in Scripture. We see where, God, where Paul says, hey, what I'm telling you is true. In fact, I know it's true because I'm calling God as my witness. Now, brethren, when you do that, You better be telling the truth, amen, because he who is truth knows all truth, (laughs) and he knows if you're telling the truth. And so Paul, again, calls God as his witness. In fact, he does it in Romans chapter 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and look at Galatians chapter 1. I just want you to see this. Look what he does here. We all know the trouble that the church in Galatia was having concerning the gospel, You know those fundamental things that we talk about, that we've been talking about, where there should be orthodoxy and we should all understand that Jesus Christ, the gospel of Christ, is the only true gospel? Well, the church at Galatia couldn't help itself. It had to go ahead and put up with some other things that weren't the gospel, or they were bringing and adding things to the gospel, circumcision, you know, little things like that, adding to the gospel. Look what Paul says here, though. Chapter chapter 1, look at verse 19. But other of the apostles I saw, uh, saw I, none, save James, the Lord's brother. Now the things which I write unto you, behold, before who? God, I lie not. 
So again, he's bringing God as a witness, telling them that all these things that I'm saying are absolutely true. And brother, he's, he's saying the same thing for us as Christians. When we speak to one another, we should speak truth. We should. Even sometimes when it hurts. We've had lots of those kind of conversations. But you know what always works out best, brother? It always works out best when you tell the truth. When you say the truth one to another. And God is watching. Remember he even called when he was preaching the gospel in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Who did he call as his witness? God. When I preach the gospel, he said, I'm standing before the Lord Jesus Christ and God himself when I preach the gospel. Again, calling witness to the Father and the Son. That's why ministers and Christians should be faithful to the gospel. Faithful to what God says because he is the one who is the garner of truth. So this is what, again, Paul is doing. He's telling them, when you are going to swear, you tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help you, God. Now, let's finish this up quick. Look there at verses 9 and 10. Philippians chapter 1, look at verses 9 and 10. This is uh, really important. This is something, again, that in today's church is badly needed. It's badly needed. You know what it is? Godly judgment and godly discernment. It's stunning what Paul calls the brother to here. Look at there, if you would, at verses 9 and 10. And this I pray, and we're going to notice here that he, he lays out three petitions that all start with the word that. <laughs> if you see that there, look at verse number 9. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. That's the first that. Look at the second one in verse 10. That ye may approve the things that are excellent. And the third one, that ye may be sincere and without offense until the day of Christ. So he's laying out there. Brothers, as I'm, as I'm closing, as I'm ending my prayer, starting in verse 3, I'm closing it down here towards the end of verse 11. And he says, these are three things that I want you to consider. First of all, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. Here we see Paul piling on adjectives. It's a beautiful thing when you consider that, amen? That word abound means to overflow, to have more than enough. So in other words, what he's saying is that your love concerning these things may abound, that there may be more and more and more, that there's more than enough, yet more and more. Listen, now, Pastor, I, I wrote this down. I'm going to give him credit. I stole it from him. Yet more and more, wave after wave should hit the banks of our souls, he says. The more we grow in grace, the greater is our capacity to love. And I believe that's a good description. Again, what is that detailing for us? It's detailing spiritual growth in the Lord. Wave after wave, as we grow more in the grace, as we understand the grace more and more, we should indeed abound more and more in it. What should we abound in? What should we yet more and more in knowledge? Now again, brethren, the biblical definitions of sincere and knowledge are not what the world thinks. Okay? My sincerity has nothing to do with my feelings. Do, do you understand that? Because you know that people can be sincerely wrong. And so if you're going to define biblical sincerity, you want to hear, what does that mean? First of all, knowledge. It's a clear and certain perception of that which exists, of truth and facts. That which clearly exists. That's what knowledge is. To abound more and more in judgment. 
to process of the mind in examining facts and arguments to determine the truth of them. In other words, discernment. In other words, when somebody says something, you should be able to discern and go, uh, I'm listening to that fact, I'm listening to that fact. Is it true? And how do we know what's true? Do we go by our emotions, our feelings? No. We don't go by the unbiblical uh, definition of sincerity. You want to know what sincere means here? This is very important, again, brethren, as we consider what this is and what that means. Verse 10, he says there that ye may approve things that are excellent. Approve, to test, to be spiritually discerned. The ability, brethren, to distinguish, listen, between right and almost right, wheat and chaff, gold and dross, the right and the, under, the, the ability to discern these things, to approve them, to have spiritual distinct, to, to really discern between that which is genuine and real and true and that which is counterfeit. You remember what Spurgeon said. And again, brother, this is something lacking in the churches. It's, it's, it's unseemly. It's unholy. It's, Howard, I hate keep bringing you up in the sermon, but you know what he told me today about a man who I love and I've followed for a long, long time. When you begin to drift away, it takes you away. Your discernment becomes clouded. Instead of looking at Scripture and going, is that true? Is what that man just said true? I weigh up and I look at the facts. I look at the truth. I look at the knowledge I understand as God gives it to you to discern and say, is that right? Is that wrong? Do I approve of that? Do I test it to have spiritual discernment? Listen, verse 10. That you may approve the things that are excellent. Listen. That you may be what? Sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Brethren, that is so important. What does that word sincere mean? It literally means to be judged by the sunlight. To be judged by the sunlight. To judge by holding up to the sunlight. And Paul, of course, now again, brethren, you remember, this was written to them 1960 years ago. And what would happen is shysters, shucksters, you know, we've all seen them, door-to-door -door salesmen, you know, they got a bad name. They would come to the square and they would sell their pottery. And they would tell the people who were buying the pottery, yes, yes, this thing is pure. There's no cracks. There's nothing in it. See, you can look. And what they would do is they would cover the cracks up with wax and paint over it. And by just looking at it, you wouldn't know if it's cracked or not. So you know what they would do? Yeah. They'd take that pottery and they'd hold it up to the sun. And you know what it would reveal? It would reveal the cracks that are in the pottery. That it isn't real. That it wasn't true. And what they were saying, they were deceiving them. And again, brother, this is the idea of sincerity. We must always, when the preacher preaches, when one is teaching the Bible, when one is trying to understand, we must always hold it up to the sun, S-O-N light. We must look and say, yes, is that what Jesus said? Do I understand that from the scriptures? Or otherwise, you'll be, as the world defines it, sincerely wrong and on your way to a devil's hell. That's exactly what... Paul is warning them not to do. Be sincere. In other words, look at it. Look at it from in the lens of Scripture, in the lens of the Lord Jesus Christ, His light. Amen? It's the only way you're going to know. There's no other way to know. And this is what Paul is telling them. You know, judge right. Remember, we're not supposed to judge anybody. <laughs> 
Well, well yeah, we are, actually. Uh, yes, we are. We're to judge rightly. I mean, I can take you to Scripture. We're out of time, but go look it up sometime. You're, we're never told not to judge. We judge everything. You judged whether you were going to get up this morning and come to, to the fellowship. You made a judgment call. And when you look at someone and their lifestyle and those sorts of things, you are allowed to make a, as the Bible says, a righteous judgment concerning that. You should make a righteous judgment concerning your own life, your own self, in light of what? The Lord Jesus Christ, his light, his sunlight. Amen? It's amazing what Paul said. Just so practical and really so needful for us. And of course, as we finish up, he uses that phrase, without offense. And that phrase there literally means not leading into sin, not falling into a trap. Literally, if you look it up, not to fall in a trap. And you know what that means? It means don't, be, don't live your life in such a way that the world can look at you and go, look at that guy there. He claims, he claims to be a Christian, but look at his life. You've fallen into a trap. It's like a stick, right, plodding along, and you stick your foot in the trap. Paul is saying, don't do that. Don't do it. Be of sincerity, biblically, and without offense. To be sincere speaks of your inner righteousness that God gives you, and that without offense speaks of our outer righteousness that the world can see. Again, there has to be the two together. They run together. Again, we're sinners. I understand that. And we do fall. But that shouldn't be a constant lifestyle of ours. It shouldn't be there. Let me close with this. Every genuine follower of the Lord Jesus Christ should have his glory in view. Is what I'm doing, is how I'm living, is it bringing glory to God? Amen. Again, that's, that, that's those two working together. God beginning the work, God sanctifying us through the work, and bringing us all the way until the end, until the day of Jesus Christ. And in that, in between that, as his sovereignty goes along, and our responsibility goes alongside of it, that's a glorious thing for us to consider. Because you know, people, brothers, when you consider this, following Christ is not something that should abhor us. It's not something, if you have the Spirit of God in you, you should be thankful you should be wanting to. It should be a desire. That's, again, the change in our natures. What we loved, we hate now. What we hated, we now love. We should love by the Spirit of God to follow him. Isn't that what he said? Take up your cross, deny yourself, and what? Follow me. There's a whole lot there in those three statements that he made. The cross is a picture of death. In other words, what he's saying is you kill your old man. You kill yourself by the power of the Spirit. You put him on the cross. You deny yourself, and then you come and follow me, which is a desire of the child of God. Do you have a desire to follow him this morning? Well, this afternoon now? Is there a desire for the things of God? That's how you know. That's what you look at. Not your own desires, but the things God speaks of. Do you desire to love him and to follow him and to want to be with his people. Yeah, us sinners that are fallible and we have all these issues, but we have issues all together, don't we? Yeah. That's where growing in love comes in more and more as we get to know one another and love one another. That's true biblical love. When you can look at my faults and I look at yours and you go, 
that's all right, brother. I know the Lord's working on you, and he's working on me too. The Father works in us and on us all the way to the end, which is really quite a glorious thing. Let's, uh, let's pray the, together this morning. Father, as we consider the, the text we've heard this morning, and we see those things that you had inspired Paul, and now you've preserved for us 1,960 years later to have. And, and we see, the, again, the theology that is always in the forefront of Paul's mind. And he, he laid that out for us early on because that's how he preaches. If you look in all of his letters, the pattern is, Here's what the Lord, this is the theology, this is, how our, we should, this is how we should think concerning something. Because when we think that way and we believe that concerning theology, then it affects, as we've seen in the end here, our lives, how we should live. And Father, we again thank you for how practical that is. And we ask, Lord, that you would apply the words that we've heard this morning and not the gibberish from the preacher, but the words of God that I have read out loud. That those words are the power. That they would indeed be taken by the Spirit of God and placed down in that secret place. The place that I can't see and men can't see. The inner man, the inner person, the heart. May it be planted deep down in there that it might indeed bring forth the fruits of righteousness in us. We know that we are a work, if you will, in progress. That the Spirit of God draws us ever so slowly sometimes those things that are displeasing to you out of our lives. And we thank you for that. If he did it all at once, we'd probably explode. But we sense in our own lives this idea of growing spiritually and in discernment. And as you do that, those things that are displeasing, they will be taken away. And you will indeed, and as you are doing, transform your child into the image of Christ. Father, we thank you for that beginning, the initiating of salvation, the working through of salvation, unto the very end, until the day of Christ. We give you all the praise and glory for it. And now, Father, we pray as we gather around the Lord's table this morning that, again, we are reminded of this. We're reminded of what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. That God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Think of that, brethren, that great exchange. He who was sinless every second, every minute, every hour, Every day, every week, every month, every year. Perfect and holy, sinless. Bore our sin that we might be made, as Paul wrote, the righteousness of God in Christ. Thank you, Father, and we praise your name for it. We give you glory for it, as Paul said. This is what brings you glory. So we do that. We glorify your name. And we pray these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Amen.